for Advent, we thought about the Magnificat, uh, Mary's great prayer, her song. And uh, we, we went from there a few different directions to other canticles. Um, I don't know how many canticles we can count in the Bible, but they are a special character of song or hymn. And one that we didn't go to because it's so obscure was one that Habakkuk sang. And Habakkuk was a prophet of God um, and prayed a great canticle prayer. So I thought this morning we would go have a look at that prayer, that song, and see what it contains. But then that sort of drew me back out into the whole book of Habakkuk. And as I read the book, I went, oh my goodness. You know, this book is more current than today is um, when, when we begin to grasp what Habakkuk was seeing and what he began to pray. So Israel is in, in two nations, Israel and Judah. Um, they're in a mess. Um, not too long before Habakkuk, there was a lovely king who reigned for a long time in Judah. His name was Josiah. He became, became king when he was eight years old. I don't know if you can imagine being an eight-year-old king. Imagine the things you could demand people do if your eight-year-old mind got to be able to put it to work. Um, and, and while he reigned righteously, he, he led a revival. I mean, the, the terrible things that the nation had done and continued to do through its whole history, um, which were kind of a rhythm of um, we want to serve God, yeah, but the Canaanite gods are, are pretty appealing. So we like the idea that there's a place to go and you can go on a high hill and you can see uh, stone things and, and sticks. And we like the traditions of these Canaanite religions. And then God would punish them. And so they'd repent and say, we're very sorry, we know that we were sworn in, by covenant to be loyal to you, to you as our only true God. And so then God would forgive them, and he would uh, relieve the oppression that he allowed to come on them. So, so during Josiah's reign, they were in that lovely time of things going well, when it was good to be God's people, and the land was fertile, and um, our wives are fertile, everything's good. But then, sure enough, the same cycle comes into play, and, and they go into wretched um, worship of other idols and other gods. And so, so Habakkuk sort of is in the middle of that, and he's, he's, he's desperate, he's just, we can see him somewhere um, being in the presence of God. And the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk crying out to God about the fact that his people, his nation, is wayward. Um, there are atrocious things going on. And, and he's calling out to God. So I'm, I'm going to read you a fair bit of Habakkuk and comment as I do. Here's, here's the way that it begins. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? 
Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. As I said, that's as current as today, isn't it? And, and the cry of Habakkuk is, is the very typical cry of sincere God followers. When, when we try to be those who acknowledge God, worship him, glorify him, give thanks, um, then we look around us and we say, but God, that much I'm committed to. I know that you are. I know that you are a God of love. I know that you are a God of justice. But if you would just permit me to, there are two questions that I have. The first question is, how long must I call for help and you don't listen? How many people have told you that very thing, that you've prayed for something um, for a long, long time, and it just feels as though God doesn't hear. He certainly doesn't seem to respond. So in the sincerity of your heart, wanting to honor God, you call out to him and say, yeah, but if I could just ask you these two questions, how long is this going to go on? How long is my suffering going to persist? How long is this brokenness going to cause me to trip up and fall over and over again? How long is my family going to be dysfunctional? How long am I going to struggle with things that I know I shouldn't do, but I can't stop myself from doing them? How long? And, and then in his perhaps more prophetic role, he says to God, and why do you make me look at injustice? So like, God, I know who you are. I know your character. So why don't you answer me? How long do I have to struggle? And then, when are you going to put an end to evil? When are you going to stop injustice? So he's looking around, not at his whole you know, broader world. He's looking at his own people and saying, God, how long is this going to carry on? And why don't you stop it? Why do I have to look at injustice? Um, year after year, you know, we perhaps naively hope that the world will be a better place. Naively, we hope that wickedness will stop, um, that there will be less oppression by the powerful over the powerless. There will be less rottenness in, in politics, in nations, in governments, you know, we may naively hope that this year it'll be better than it was last year. And yet maybe at the end of this year we'll be saying, remember what happened here? Remember that country that was a peaceful country until there was a despot who basically abused the people, who oppressed the poor? Remember? And, and we might find ourselves asking God the same two questions. How long is this going to take? And Why? Do we have to keep on looking at it? So God actually answers Habakkuk. So we should say, good deal. Let's hear what the answer is because we have the same questions. Uh, 
maybe God has an answer for Habakkuk that will work for us. So I'll carry on. Here's what God says. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Isn't that cool? So Habakkuk is saying, all this time, I've been asking how long and why. Now God's talking. God's going to give me an answer. But the answer that God gives him is, is rather veiled. God says, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And then, not in the text, but we hear it implied that Habakkuk says, try me. God says, you won't believe it, even if I told you. Habakkuk says, sure I would. Tell me what it is. You're going to tell me the answer to that set of questions that has plagued me. How long and why? God says, you're not going to believe what I'm going to do. Habakkuk says, come on, what is it? Here's what God says. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their, their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like, like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. The Babylonians, or in, in another version, it would say the Chaldeans, the same people, were among the most ruthless peoples of earth. Um, when the Babylonians swoop down on a, on a town or a city, they leave it wrecked. Um, historians say they made their way through villages rape by rape. They piled up the heads of their victims um, in pyramids. They were the most ruthless, ugly people. And they even, the language that Habakkuk uses as though it's figurative, it's actually literal about how they tortured people. They were the most cruel people on earth. And God said, I'm going to do a new thing. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Habakkuk says, tell me. God says, I'm going to use the Babylonians to discipline my people. And Habakkuk said, I don't believe it. Right? He says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? 
That's us, God. Aren't you the God that is purer than would deign to look on wickedness? You're going to use people who are more evil than your people to discipline your people. You're going to give victory to these who are the most treacherous among nations. You're right, I don't believe it. I don't believe that a, a God who is the God of character that you are would let that happen. How, how, can, you, how can you possibly countenance that? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? We are the creatures. He's the creator. And in in our sort of North American, Western version of Christianity, we would like God to behave a bit better than he does. Um, we, we think he's a little too severe in what he calls wrong and sin and all of that. We, we do really enjoy the fact that God is love. And we, we properly exult in that, that, that by nature he is love. By character, in, in his essence, he is love. But we struggle with some of the parts of God's story. Um, we, we struggle with parts like this, don't we? How many of you love reading the Old Testament because God shows up as, as a good guy? Or do you pass through some parts of the Old Testament and say, I, I don't know, I, is this part of the Bible? Um, is, is this what God thinks? Did God really do these things? Because that's not the loving God that I like to dwell on. And, and fortunately, we, we, can, um, we can kind of bypass some of that history and find the, the fulfillment of God's purposes beginning to take place in the story of the New Testament. But all the while, there, there's still this, this ominous history in, in this grand narrative that God does things that we wouldn't believe it if we were told. Um, and in the middle of it all, God actually is saying to Habakkuk, this is what I am doing about the things that trouble you. So what's your problem, Habakkuk? So Habakkuk is wherever he is reeling with the fact that God's answer to his two-part question is disconcerting. God says, I, I am going to do something about it, and I'm going to do it soon, but you wouldn't believe it if I told you. What is it? I don't believe it. You wouldn't do that, would you? The, the rest of the story, um, you know, it, it doesn't get to a happy end. But it, it brings us to a proper pause in the middle that, that is the right response 
that Habakkuk has and that we should have. Um, God tells him that he should write down what he's told and pay attention to how it takes place. But here's what Habakkuk says he's going to do. So, so you know, you know, God has said, um, I, I know about the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. I, I know that they sacrifice to their net, they burn incense to their dragnet, for by their net they live in luxury and enjoy choices foods, and, and, and they keep on um, emptying their nets, destroying nations without mercy. You're right. The Chaldeans are the most treacherous. Um, they, they haul away with hooks and nets the whole population of villages and towns and squares. But you, you just write down what I tell you, and, and we'll see. But, but kind of the, the, the pivot on, in the whole thing is how Nehemiah responds. Not Nehemiah, um, Habakkuk. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. What Habakkuk says is, I am at a loss for words. I am dismayed beyond belief about what God has said he's going to do. Um, so I, I'm going to wait. I'm, I'm going to station myself on the rampart. I'm, I'm going to stand on the wall and wait to see. It, it's the pause in the middle of the horror um, that was the appropriate response that Habakkuk took. We now ourselves find ourselves asking those two questions and we find ourselves horrified at the idea that, that God is somehow using something even worse to do something better or permanent. Um, but, but we do know about God's character. We do know about, about God's nature. Um, and we find ourselves, I think, called on by God to, to just stop and wait. Not to propose religious answers or to propose human answers, but to say, um, we're kind of happily stuck in our commitment to God. And we're alarmed at what might happen so that what God has purposed will, will come about. But we're going to need to learn to wait without knowing. And that's a very un-New Year's Day-ish or New Year's resolution-ish kind of thing. But it could be that in the middle of, of, of our trying to sort through how the, uh, how the church has messed up, how the world messes up, how, how a plague is upon us, maybe what God is saying to us is, 
could you just be quiet and wait? Don't, don't presume to know the answer. Don't presume to know the solution. Stop fighting each other and just wait. I came across a poem. It was from Hudson Taylor. So Hudson Taylor was a great missionary. And he wrote a poem called Standing Still at Sovereign Will. Here's what it says. In every life, there's a pause that is better than onward rush, better than hewing or mightiest doing. Tis the standing still at sovereign will. There's a hush that is better than ardent speech, better than sighing or wilderness crying. Tis the being still at sovereign will. The pause and the hush sing a double song in unison low and for all time long. O human soul, God's working plan goes on, nor needs the aid of man. Stand still and see. Be still and know. Habakkuk says, okay, I'll be right here. Standing still in sovereign will. Perhaps that's where we need to be, is to properly mourn the sadnesses of our lives and world, but to confidently rest in God's sovereign plan. Um, he will have what he has determined to have. It's all blanketed by his character of love. That's, that's, that's the single story. Even when we can't figure out how it is love that allows suffering and the duration of evil in our world. God says, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Okay, I will stand still and see what that is. It's not a very uplifting, encouraging message, right? But it's a message that says we know enough to believe. We don't know enough to understand. Right? We know enough to believe. We know that, in fact, yes, God's spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God. We know we haven't been sold a bill of goods. We, we know that we haven't believed a lie or we've not been deceived. We, we know that we are his children. We know that in our hearts. But in our heads, we don't understand. And we don't understand because God is so exponentially greater in every respect than we are. Something that Bethany's dad said to me a few summers ago has stuck with me, that he said that many of uh, our dilemmas about understanding the Bible and God is because we anthropomorphize God. And he's right. It, it's because we, we, we make God like one of us, and therefore, if, if God 
was one of us, he would do it this way or he would think this way. And he's not one of us. He became one of us. But he is beyond us. And I think the more I can let go of, of reducing God to what I understand and the more I can live into the belief of his love, um, the more I would be able to just stand still in his sovereign will and say, I'll watch and see. I will trust you. Um, we will trust you. And we know that you will bring about the things that are on your heart and mind that you always have. And God might say that that would be very good. Because if you had known that at the beginning of time, already there was a lamb who had been slain. It was already done. And yet it was millennia until you saw the truth of it in the person of, of my son Jesus. So let that be a lesson to you that if you have heard of the things I have done in the past and you want me to do them again, I will. They will be flavored by the salt of my love and my mercy and my grace. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for the startling story of Habakkuk. And um, we thank you, Father, that, that um, you, you maybe are able to get our attention and tell us that we, we need to stop and be quiet and be still and see what you do. We need to learn to trust you. And we have every reason to do that. Help us to keep on trying to understand. But forgive us, Lord, when we reduce you to human thoughts and understandings and, um, and then impose those ideas on other people as though they are true truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this new year that you've brought us to. And we trust ourselves into your care. Uh, as we stand on the ramparts. Amen.